I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Well, Miriam, I'm really excited today to interview Dr. Kush Varshney. I have been really impressed by the work that IBM has done on ethical AI, and in particular, its commitment to making a lot of its tools available to the public and and open source. So I think this is going to be a really great conversation. Is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to or that you want want to get at in this discussion? Well, yeah, I've heard so much about the AI Fairness 360 tool, so I'm excited. We'll talk to one of the people that helped create it and implement its functions. Uh, I'm curious to learn more about the social good program they have at IBM, and I'm really excited to talk to someone who's in the middle of writing a book on this topic. Likewise, I think those are all going to be great topics to explore. So let's let's dive in and hear from Dr. Varshney. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Dr. Kush Varshney, a distinguished research staff member and manager in IBM Research AI at the Thomas J. Watson Research Center, where he has conducted cutting-edge AI and machine learning research for the past 10 years. Varshney also serves as co-director of IBM's Science for Social Good program, which we'll look forward to talking with him about today. Before IBM, Varshney received both a master's in science and a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT. His research interests include statistical signal processing, machine learning, data mining, and image processing, only pretty much the hottest topics uh, in AI today. In addition to writing numerous articles on AI, Varshney helped develop AI Fairness 360, a comprehensive open source toolkit of metrics to check for unwanted bias in data sets and machine learning models and state-of-the-art algorithms to mitigate bias. Another point that we look forward to delving into today. Most recently, uh, very recently as of this week, Varshney has finished writing a book titled Trust in Machine Learning. Given his vast experience in AI and its social impacts, we are so excited to have Dr. Varshney on our show today and hopefully we'll answer the question, can we put trust in machine learning? Dr. Varshney, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. So one thing I would love to ask you is you've been thinking about these hot topics long before many people realized Uh, that AI and bias and trustworthiness were such pivotal concerns. Where did you develop this passion? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you mentioned, um, I did my PhD at MIT and um, it was a mix of uh, some machine learning and some signal processing uh, sort of topics in my dissertation. And um, one of the small sections um, at that point was actually a um, model for um, how humans uh, might actually um, uh, have these biases come up in their decision-making. And uh, the basic idea behind that work at that time was that um, uh, humans uh, as as decision-makers have uh, what's called bounded rationality. So we aren't able to do everything in the full optimal way, even though we try to. Um, And specifically, um, we're doing a decision-making task, uh, something called a Bayesian decision-making task. Then uh, you're trying to use the prior probability of someone, um, uh, let's say committing a crime or committing a foul or something like that um, as part of your decision-making process. So, um, 
if you're a basketball referee and you're calling fouls on players, um, you kind of have in your mind that these players um, commit fouls at a low rate, these players commit fouls at a high rate, and so forth. And uh, But as a human, you're not able to remember, oh, this player's actual prior probability of committing fouls is 0.3857 or whatever. Right? Um, so you tend to group the, um, these objects into categories like low, medium, high, and so forth. And um, it turns out that by doing this grouping, uh, you're going to reduce your um, accuracy of your um, decision-making process. But even more than that, um, uh, when we as humans um, do this, we tend to do these groupings separately for different social constructs uh, that we see. Um, so as a referee, I might uh, have separate groupings for black players and white players. And um, it turns out if you are trying to be optimal um, with that restriction in place that you are going to be doing groupings, um, uh, you will actually allocate more um, groupings, uh, more quantization levels to uh, the uh, the group that you're more familiar with. And uh, because of that, um, uh, it tends to, uh, I mean, put in these uh, these biases that, that we see. So that was part of my PhD thesis. Then I started working at IBM uh, right after grad school. Um, didn't touch kind of the fairness uh, work for a while, but then when it started getting um, uh, popular again um, in, in the machine learning community, then uh, we started working on it again. So uh, that's kind of my my story, I guess. That's fascinating, and um, uh, what a, an interesting and, and useful kind of example and case study to, to help our listeners uh, think through some of these complicated questions around sort of Bayesian thinking and, 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 and the ways in which bias comes into AI systems. I'm curious, as you made that transition from uh, you know being a student to doing your own PhD research, moving into the industry space where you are now, what that experience has been like, and you know, has your perspective changed, particularly as the issues that you were focusing on before they were very popular have now become, you know, the stuff of magazine covers. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so when I started working at IBM Research, and actually the thing that attracted me to IBM Research was the fact that um, uh, the group that I joined, uh, it was led by uh, Sashka Moisilovich, who's still my um, manager. So she's uh, uh, become an IBM fellow since then and so forth. But um, uh, back then, I mean, her group was uh, actually pushing the boundaries of uh, using machine learning in ways that had never occurred to me before um, that you could even do this. Um, so when I started working um, at IBM Research, uh, one of the main topics uh, that we were applying machine learning to was uh, human capital management. Um, so the idea that uh, you can make predictions about employees to uh, better manage them. So that could be um, uh, in terms of their skills. Uh, so can you estimate uh, what their skills are in order to form better teams? Uh, uh, can you predict uh, which uh, teams of salespeople will be most effective um, based on uh, their various characteristics? Even um, uh, can you predict employees who are at risk of voluntarily resigning so that uh, a company can then go in and uh, take proactive actions to retain uh, employees that might be at risk of resigning? So all of these sort of things um, were really exciting at that time. And uh, uh, they kind of exposed me to the fact that, uh, yeah, I mean, machine learning does have a human element. And uh, we do have to start thinking about kind of the considerations that go into using machine learning in these uh, important topics that go beyond just accuracy. So um, uh, actually doing these projects early on in my uh, career at IBM Research uh, 
with with actual clients, with actual business units, um, uh, kind of set the direction uh, that followed. Uh, so we did a lot of work on explainable machine learning um, right after that. Um, uh, so my first uh, research publication on explainable machine learning was back in 2013 uh, before it really um, became that popular. And um, it was uh, motivated exactly by these um, HR um, human resources sort of problems that, that we were seeing. So as you take on these issues that are so pivotal to all of us, whether it's hiring, bias in AI, uh, as you mentioned in sports, it can be in finance, it could be you know, areas big and small. Uh, we're noticing more and more in our society that we operate in these bubbles. We tend to, whether it's through social media's encouragement or uh, in our private lives, more and more we're talking to people who uh, think in the ways that we do. I'm wondering when you get outside of the bubble, when you're talking to parents, friends, or if you're talking to kids who aren't thinking about trustworthy AI day in, day out the way you do and your colleagues do, what do you find most surprising or what do you wish they knew that is so clear and evident to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think um, one big thing that is out there is just this general fear um, that uh, I mean, people hear about AI um, just from the kind of the science fiction sort of perspective that there's all these, um, uh, I mean, Terminator, I mean, Skynet sort of things that can happen. And uh, uh, I think what I would emphasize to folks is that um, we're not there yet and we're not going to be there yet for a long time. And uh, really what the dangers with machine learning are right now are not those where um, you can have some super sort of system that just completely takes everything over. Um, there are these subtle sort of issues that are um, are not so visible, like um, just having a few percentage points worse accuracy on a particular group in some lending application. Those are the sort of things that are really the troubling ones. And so um, the these big picture sort of um, doomsday um, dystopian sort of things are um, are good to have in your mind, but uh, I mean these smaller things that actually are not small, they actually affect lives now are, are the things that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, that's something that, 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 that we've talked about before and we've encountered in our conversations, um, particularly with the public. There's a, a, a really wider you know, variety of public viewpoints and um, the focus is often on the kind of big worst case scenario rather than the many pervasive ways that um, things can go wrong that people might not even notice, but which can have a material effect on their lives. Um, you know, I guess on that point, you've you, you've just finished writing a book uh, for which congratulations, uh, trust in machine learning. Um, what were you trying to answer with with, with that book, and um, you know, what are you who are you hoping to reach with it? Yeah, so um, it's actually still in progress. So um, the publisher uh, Manning Publications, uh, one thing that they do is. Um, uh, they make uh, the early chapters available um, through an early access program. And so I've written about half of it um, uh, and the publisher has put out about a quarter of it so far and they'll be putting out chapters as I go along um, with some buffer. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, the whole idea around the book is um, kind of just asking, first of all, what is it that um, uh, we mean when we say that a machine learning system is trustworthy, um, because even that is not particularly obvious. Um, so for an individual machine learning system that we see, um, 
whether it's a hiring system or a lending system or even a, a criminal justice uh, related uh, pretrial detention uh, decision system or whatever have you, um, uh, we first have to know what it is that we're trying to achieve. And uh, one thing that I've been trying to kind of um, clarify in my mind and uh, try to clarify in the book as well is that um, uh, there's kind of these four attributes at a high level that um, we want from someone or even some system that is trustworthy. So uh, the first attribute is that it should have, uh, or the person or the system should have some level of competence at what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, they need to actually be doing what they say that they do. Um, so have some credibility with there, but then that's not enough. So the second attribute is um, uh, some level of reliability that that competence sticks around in different conditions, different settings, and so forth. Um, third attribute is um, some level of openness or intimacy or um, transparency, so you can go back and forth and communicate with um, the person or the system. And the fourth is some level of selflessness. Um, so you don't want that system or that person only working towards their own goals, but um, having a broader perspective so that they can um, uh, really, I mean, uh, do something that's uh, more beneficial for, for all. And um, uh, the book kind of works through how these apply to machine learning systems in particular. So um, uh, the competence is uh, through basic accuracy of machine learning models. The reliability is through um, uh, robustness to distribution shifts, robustness to adversarial attacks and fairness. Um, the openness is through interpretability and explainability of models, as well as transparency of um, overall pipelines of machine learning systems. And also in the other direction, not just the machine uh, being able to explain itself to us, but we should be able to talk to the machine uh, to provide our own values and, and uh, what society wants from it. And then um, uh, the final sort of piece, the selflessness comes in of um, uh, how do we kind of um, uh, think about all the malicious sort of uses of, of AI um, and the beneficial uses and kind of think about how to balance those and um, uh, lean towards uh, using AI for social good. So um, that's kind of the big picture. And it's um, the book is kind of uh, oriented towards uh, practitioners. Um, so it's not kind of a philo philosophical sort of treatment. It's really, I mean, uh, ways for um, for practicing data scientists and developers to think about um, when they're developing their own machine learning systems, what it is that they should be um, thinking about, what considerations they should have and uh, how they should achieve these sort of goals. That's fantastic. And it seems that even the platform you're using to publish the book is innovative and unique. I noticed you were crowdsourcing for comments along the way. Can you tell us about your choice and, and how that's working? Yeah, um, so right. one of the reasons I chose this publisher is because of their early access um, program. So as the book's being written, um, there's a forum for um, people to provide input and feedback. and. Um, uh, one reason that uh, I want this to happen is because um, uh, it's very important, especially when talking about topics like uh, fairness and machine learning, um, that uh, we have a diverse set of viewpoints that have their um, their place that are incorporated. Um, so I obviously am biased. I have um, particular um, viewpoints based on my own lived experiences, which are actually quite uh, privileged. Um, so the more um, sort of diverse viewpoints that I can hear and get criticism on, um, uh, the more reflective uh, the contents of the book will be of um, what's needed for all uh, sorts of groups, including marginalized groups that often don't have a seat at the table. So. Um, 
so this, I mean, way of doing things is meant to facilitate some of that. And um, uh, it's not going to be the end, I mean, the only way to do it, because um, a lot of people who normally don't have a seat at the table won't be on these platforms either. So um, uh, once the, um, the, I mean, all the chapters are written, um, I am going to convene um, a, a diverse voices sort of panel to kind of think about and um, uh, provide some feedback um, and uh, kind of kind of do it that way. And uh, uh, I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but um, one important aspect that um, is becoming uh, very apparent is that asking people for feedback is a job. I mean, it's not just something that people do for. Um, uh, I mean, when uh, I mean when they have nothing else to do, right? So um, uh, there's been, I mean, a lot of recent. Uh, not a lot, but there's been at least some recent work on um, uh, the fact that uh, participatory design uh, needs to recognize that um, getting input from, uh, uh, I mean, underrepresented groups should be compensated. So, um, uh, so I'll try to figure out what that means in the context of the book, but at the high level principle um, needs to be there for sure. That's terrific. Um, a, a lot there, and we're really excited to read the book, and 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 very you know interested in hearing more about this this process to to write it and get comments iteratively. It is, as Miriam said, just an innovative way to to do that. Um, we've talked a lot about the risks and the potential harms of of AI and how to mitigate them. Uh, in IBM, you're also the co-director of an initiative called Science for Social Good, which I think focuses on looking at the opportunities and the benefits. And um, just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the purpose of that initiative, maybe some of the projects that it's supported and um, how those projects are using AI to achieve their social goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Sashka and I, um, we've been running this program uh, since uh, 2015. Uh, so uh, we have uh, had every year um, fellows that join us um, that are PhD students uh, or master students from uh, universities around the world, um, as well as uh, a couple of postdocs as well. And um, uh, we've done about 35 projects to date. Um, and most often they're in partnership with uh, nonprofits or other social enterprises. Um, and the topics that we tend to uh, cover uh, through these projects are uh, related to the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals that the um, member states of the United Nations ratified in 2015. Uh, so these include things like uh, poverty, hunger, health, education, and uh, inequalities of various sorts. Um, and what we do is we partner with these um, organizations, uh, nonprofits and others who are really working on the ground, um, who have particular pain points. So we have conversations back and forth with these organizations um, uh, to really understand what is it that um, is, is their biggest challenge and how we can um, use AI technologies to um, uh, better support their missions. And um, that scoping process is uh, the biggest challenge um, because uh, uh, there's many great organizations out there, but um, it's very hard to find uh, the right fit where um, there's value for everyone involved um, uh, for bringing AI and, uh, and so forth to these problems. So, um, uh, so I mean, just to give you a few examples, um, uh, one of our early projects uh, was with the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, and it was um, related to pandemics, which is um, uh, particularly, uh, I mean, uh, top of mind for folks now, but uh, even then, so this was in 2016, um, 
uh, Zika virus had recently um, uh, transferred over from uh, Africa, where it had been known for the last 50 years, um, to the Americas, um, Brazil uh, specifically. And it was causing this uh, thing called microcephaly, which is um, uh, small heads and other developmental disorders in uh, newborns uh, from mothers who had been infected with Zika virus. And so um, uh, what we worked on with uh, our Care Institute uh, disease ecologist uh, partners was um, uh, to figure out which um, sort of uh, species of primates um, are the reservoir species for Zika virus in the Americas. Um, and uh, we built a predictive model based on the physiological and behavioral characteristics of primates and were able to predict um, uh, certain species. And uh, we, um, after we did our modeling, we actually validated it because some field ecologists in Brazil were uh, finding species that were reservoirs. And so um, the use of that is that once you know what the reservoir species are, um, uh, you can uh, focus your uh, surveillance uh, efforts uh, around where those uh, those species uh, live and, and so forth. So, so that's one example. Um, a completely different example that we um, uh, recently completed um, uh, was with this organization called CityLink Center, which is based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, they are an integrated social services provider. So what that means is that um, in uh, in cities in the U.S., if you're poor and uh, you have, um, you're actually eligible for a lot of different social services, um, whether that's um, housing or um, job training or even diapers or whatever other stuff that you need. Um, but it's often um, uh, that there's different offices that uh, uh, that are there that offer these different services. And it's hard to navigate and figure out what to do and which things you're eligible for and so forth. Um, so what CityLink Center has done is um, house all, about 15 different social service providers into one place. And uh, they offer a common intake system and counselors who guide you through the process, what interventions that you should uh, go for as a as a poor person. Um, so their clients come in and they can keep getting, uh, I mean, guidance and interventions. So uh, what CityLink Center also does is they track the progress of their clients um, over time of um, uh, how have they achieved along different areas of life, whether that's um, mental health or employment or housing or transportation or childcare and so forth. Um, and so what we did with them was to um, build a causal model, um, so do what's called a causal discovery task, um, to try to figure out um, which interventions um, influence which um, uh, sort of outcome measures. And it's not always a direct sort of thing. It could be that one thing uh, affects something else, which eventually affects um, the, the outcome that you want. So having this full causal sort of relationship map um, is, is useful to then figure out what are the steps that a given in, incoming client needs to take in order to graduate out of poverty in a, either with high success rate or um, quickly or whatever goals they might have. I can imagine it must be extremely satisfying to work on such projects and to put them to use and actually benefit people through these models and, and reality. Uh, similarly, I would imagine an AI Fairness 360 tool must be pretty exciting. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what the tool is, what it isn't, and some uh, some, some successes you've had. I'd also love if you could share, you know, I think in trying to create trustworthy AI, everybody hits certain challenges. I think there are shared 
problems that we can work through. And one thing on the show we'd love is for people to be able to understand what they're getting into, potential workarounds, uh, how others have handled it. So uh, both the highs and lows, it would be great if you could share with us. Sure, yep. So let me start by telling you what it is. Um, so AI Fairness 360 is an open source toolkit, um, both in Python and in R, um, which uh, is uh, a set of uh, bias mitigation algorithms and uh, fairness metrics that let developers um, uh, include, uh, I mean, a lot of these sort of uh, technologies into their natural workflows, um, whether they're developing a hiring system or whatever other system that they're developing. Um, and uh, it's uh, a collection of um, very, uh, I mean, a, a lot of uh, bias mitigation algorithms coming from a variety of uh, labs. Uh, so some of them come from us at IBM Research, but um, uh, many of them are from uh, various uh, industrial and academic labs around the world. Uh, so back in 2018, um, we had this thought, um, we had already been uh, developing some of our own uh, bias mitigation algorithms, uh, including one that we uh, published in 2017. Um, but as we were looking around, there was a lot of fragmentation and there was no unified sort of way for a developer uh, who, want, who was interested in um, actually tackling these topics in their normal work um, uh, to, to actually put these uh, to use. So uh, we felt that, I mean, going from principles to practice was a very important sort of thing to try to enable. And so in the summer of 2018, um, so our IBM research uh, 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 folks, both in the US and in India, um, we came together and uh, just said, let's go ahead and do this. And let's um, uh, catalog what's out there, um, try to find the best bias mitigation algorithms that there are, um, and implement them all in common interface, um, which matches uh, uh, scikit-learn, which is the, the, one of the most popular um, sort of Python packages uh, for doing machine learning. And um, uh, just put it out there um, along with um, a lot of tutorials, a lot of educational material, um, uh, so that people uh, who want to start working on uh, including fairness into their uh, into their workflows uh, can do that. So, uh, so we did that. It was released in September of 2018. It's an open source project um, that uh, we donated um, last year to the Linux Foundation. So now it's owned and governed by the Linux Foundation. And um, there's a very uh, active Slack community that's been um, uh, grown around it. Um, and we've had contributions from uh, uh, several uh, uh, researchers uh, since the initial release. So there's, uh, it just keeps growing and growing. Um, and so uh, in terms of the challenges and kind of what is it is, what it isn't, um, uh, so what it isn't is a, a panacea. Um, so it's not a silver bullet to solve fairness issues. Really. I mean, there's no one solution. So uh, what we always um, want to emphasize is that it's just a set of tools that um, have applicability for a very narrow sort of set of problems, which are allocation decision problems that um, uh, are that are out there um, for uh, I mean for certain high stakes application domains, and there's many notions of fairness and justice. Um, this is just one type, um, which uh, is kind of distribution uh, distributive justice, um, and even then, I mean it's a very narrow sort of scope. And uh, there's many other things that one needs to do in order to ensure. Um, 
uh, that you have a system that, uh, that that's working well for, for a large number of people. Um, uh, another sort of challenge that we're actively working to overcome is the fact that um, there are a large number of uh, metrics to measure fairness um, in machine learning systems of that type. And we have, I mean, implementations of all of them, but it's very difficult for a policymaker to figure out what it is that they should be doing for their particular application. Um, so we, since the beginning, we've had guidance material on the website for AI Fairness 360, which talks through this, but um, uh, we're trying to develop better um, human-computer interaction tools to, um, uh, to actually guide people through this process because um, uh, choosing the right thing to do um, is is extremely challenging, and uh, it shouldn't be left to a, a data scientist, for for example, to figure out. It should be really a higher level policy discussion, including um, the inclusion of uh, of diverse voices, as we talked about before, in, in figuring this out. So, um, uh, so how to do this is something that we're um, actively working on, and uh, we're trying to figure out. Um, uh, what more uh, would, would make sense uh, for, for the community. Well, and speaking of community, you mentioned policy. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but if you were to make one or two recommendations to the Biden administration with your vast experience in AI and trustworthy tools, you're seeing common problems, you're seeing ways I'm sure that you would like government support or intervention, what would your one or two recommendations be? Yeah, so um, another thing that we've actively been working on is uh, thinking about the transparency aspects of AI. Um, uh, one thing that we've, I mean, released, it, which is similar to what others have as well, is called the AI Fact Sheets uh, project. And um, it's around um, I mean, transparent reporting mechanisms and so forth. Um, uh, so how do you um, look at the entire pipeline of uh, what goes into a machine learning system from uh, the problem specification, uh, so what are the intended uses, should this problem even be solved or not, um, uh, to what data is there, what biases it contains, to tests that you've conducted on the models on uh, accuracy, but also fairness, robustness, explainability, and so forth, and then uh, making those available um, to uh, uh, to the right folks uh, so that they can consume them uh, in the appropriate way. Um, so this way of, I mean, thinking about transparency is, um, uh, is a mechanism that gets you more towards certification and uh, kind of uh, uh, managing risks that uh, that are there for, for these sort of systems. So uh, from a policy perspective, um, uh, one thing that uh, I mean, I think is very important is to um, look at the landscape um, of these different application domains in which machine learning is now being used. Some of them are already regulated um, and uh, the use of machine learning doesn't absolve the uh, decision makers of their responsibilities that they already have. Um, for example, um, uh, with equal credit or um, fair housing or things of that nature. Uh, but then kind of think about in a precise way what beyond what already exists in those regulations uh, is needed in terms of uh, how do you certify um, these machine learning systems uh, to be used in, in these high stakes applications. So uh, that would be my main sort of recommendation is um, uh, kind of think about the, the governance and certification aspects and kind of um, uh, codify them in ways that make sense for um, particular uh, particular application domains. Well, I hope they're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Me too. Uh, that's really a, a good call to action for our um, our, our policymakers, and and I think uh, it's something that we're working on and and hope to keep working on. Um, we we typically end with a a question that we ask all of our guests, and um, it, it it takes everyone back to their time in kindergarten. Um, it's it's the rose, the thorn, and the bud. Uh, the rose is something that uh, a highlight or a success, something that that's happened that you're you know really jazzed on. The thorn is you know something that you've seen that's been a challenge or that you think is 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 is, is problematic uh, that's happening right now in the space. And the bud is something you're excited about that's coming down the pipeline. So, uh, Dr. Varshi, rose rose thorn and bud um, on ethical AI. Sure. Um, so rose. Um... Uh, so I think, I mean, the set of open source toolkits, uh, we talked about AI Fairness 360, but um, uh, the others that we've also created and are in the process of creating some more um, uh, AI Explainability 360, Adversarial Robustness Toolbox, and uh, so forth. Um, I think those have been a real success for, for us because um, uh, they've been a means for us to, um, I mean, really affect how practice happens and um, also provide a venue for um, uh, the research from the labs to transition and translate over into practice. So I think that's been a, a real rose for, for me, for us. Um, and the uh, the social good program as well. Uh, I mean, working with these nonprofits um, to, to further the missions uh, has been really enlightening and uh, been a real means for us to um, uh, to marshal the, the skills that we have. Um, uh, in terms of a thorn, um, uh, I'd say just um, the fact that uh, uh, there's, I mean, kind of this, uh, I mean, this, I mean, question about um, uh, whether, um, I mean, lived experiences are a valid form of knowledge um, in machine learning, in machine learning research. Um, uh, so there's been a lot of controversy recently um, figuring out this boundary of um, uh, whether um, lived experience really counts as uh, as, as true, I mean, um, uh, sort of uh, knowledge for for machine learning to to make progress, and so uh, trying to get that resolved in the broader community is, I think, I mean, the, the biggest thorn that I see right now um, because. Uh, making AI ethical or responsible or trustworthy isn't, uh, I mean, something just for, for a small subset to, to, to figure out. So um, making sure that, uh, that we're bringing in those, uh, uh, those aspects is probably the thorn that needs to be overcome. And then um, in terms of the bud, um, uh, so yeah, we didn't talk about this so much, but um, so far, but with the experience we've had in our social good program, uh, we've seen that uh, there's kind of this gap that prevents um, uh, data science or AI from really making impact in the social sector. Um, and that gap is because um, there's a lack of resources and a lack of skills um, on the side of nonprofits to really take on um, machine learning technologies into their operations and keep them uh, deployed and maintained and so forth. Uh, one thing we're starting to uh, develop is more of a platform view of um, uh, how to deliver AI for social good um, because it's not really a, a topic of study more than like a business model. So how do you empower um, low resource organizations um, uh, to really um, be able to use machine learning on their own terms? And so uh, one way we think that that can happen is um, 
by finding common technological patterns that, uh, that are applicable to multiple uh, mission-driven organizations and uh, create that and make it available um, through uh, some sort of cloud infrastructure so that most of the responsibility then falls on the technology provider um, rather than on the social change organization. So something we're working through, um, we'll see how it goes. Well, this is terrific. You've given us a lot to think about and a lot to look forward to. So thank you, Dr. Varshney, for your time today. Uh, we're really grateful for uh, you took the time and for all that you're doing. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a true pleasure. And um, yeah, I hope uh, the listeners uh, can get something from this. Well, Mark, I'm certainly leaving this episode encouraged by some of the deep thinking going on, uh, both in AI and in ways that tech companies can be doing social good projects outside of the AI space. Absolutely. That was really what struck me about this conversation. Dr. Varshney, obviously an incredibly impressive person and his ability to both work on addressing the challenges and the problems that AI can present if used improperly, while also thinking about all of these beneficial ways that it can be used and trying to drive that forward. To me, that was just very inspiring and I think really exciting to think about uh, how we make progress on both of those fronts. I'll look forward to reading his book and continuing the conversation. Likewise, great episode. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org dot org.